Well, thank you, Doug. Um, so my job in the next about 25 minutes is to provide an overview in terms of how we look at and approach our patients who may have developed a complication on one of our medications. Um, so this is, you're gonna see less evidence and more eminence, um, and then you're getting the theme that this is based on limited data. However, as we went through the meeting, I think most of us sit here and think that one of the aspects of care that is still the most challenging are the patients that come in <clears throat> who are gonna start on these treatments and they ask a litany of questions appropriately about the safety and the safety profile. And then one of these safety events actually occurs when we have the patient on the medicine. And then the question is, what do we do? So this is really the focus of my talk, and I hope to tie together uh, many of the themes, and certainly in the discussion quite, uh, will be interesting as well. Uh, so these are my disclosures. Uh, but I actually should say my most important disclosure, despite moving to Cleveland, and I think Ray Cross is going to be most happy about this, um, I, I don't think I can ever replace the Steelers despite three weeks in a row of losses and the Browns actually playing better. And the reality is Ray told me last night that the Steelers could end with the same record as the Browns this year, which makes me a little bit queasy to think about. But I'm still hoping that Cleveland does well. So just to put that out there. So what are the agents that we really consider when we look at the current milieu of treatment? So we have the anti-TNFs, anti-integrin, anti-L1223, and the JAK inhibitors. And these have all been integrated into your practices in some degree over the last 20 years, and then more recently with some of the newer therapies. So I'd like to first of all give a shout out to Dr. Ben Click, who actually wrote this. And if you're looking for um, some guidance, we just actually published this, and I think it's now on, available online, a practical guide to the safety and monitoring of new IBD therapies. So much of what I'm going to cover here is published in this review, where we also try to provide some practical guidance on how to approach these patients. So what do we do prior to starting these medications? And I think that this is something we've talked about in the realm of health maintenance. I think that this is built into some of our EMRs. Uh, I know in our EPIC systems, we're looking for this as well. So a quick checklist. We talk about vaccinations, um, baseline laboratory testing. And I think vaccinations are actually probably one of the more vexing things for us as gastroenterologists. And I don't think any of us expected 20 years ago that we're going to be so focused on vaccinations. But these are a primary and of importance to us and our patients. So what are some common things? Well, obviously, we should uh, give annual influenza vaccines. And I think most of us um, are doing this. It's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion over the quadrivalent flu zone, this kind of higher dose influenza. And should we be considering this? We do this over 65. But should we be considering this in our potentially immunosuppressed or already immunosuppressed patients? And at this point, we don't have data, but maybe we'll have a discussion. Herpes zoster vaccine, you've heard a lot of this, and I think the question is, should we, uh, all adult patients, even under 50, uh, get vaccinated against herpes zoster? My answer simply is yes, and I think Shingrix is highly effective. Two potential problems is, one, there's currently a national shortage, so at least in Cleveland, I'm having a hard time getting this for our patients. And two, under the age of 50, the insurance company is not paying, or at least I've had a barrier of paying 
payment for this. So depending on the patient and what they can afford, this could represent a barrier. Pneumococcal vaccination in addition to flu, and I think Brian Fagan yesterday in his talk appropriately mentioned, pneumococcal pneumonia is still one of the leading causes of death and certainly morbidity in our patients, and we really need to be vaccinating our patients. This is a bit controversial. I'm not doing varicella testing at this point, and I'm not doing varicella vaccination, um, but this has come up, and the question is, should we check varicella titers in our patients before starting treatment? Similarly, the human papilloma uh, vaccine is available. It's highly effective. Um, I do think our patients, especially that 18 to 26 young ages, not just females, but males, should be something that we could, uh, should consider uh, vaccinating our patients. So what about the live vaccines? This comes up quite a bit in our practices, especially in patients who are traveling. So I put up the list of the live vaccines uh, that we have. So the intranasal flu, yellow fever. Yellow fever comes up primarily with travels, uh, travelers to endemic uh, countries. This can be a huge problem and barrier because some of the patients we have who are immunosuppressed, it's hard actually to enter the country if they don't have a yellow fever vaccine. BCG, MMR, varicella, and the Zostavax, which is the old herpes vaccine, has, I think, largely been replaced with the Shingrix, um, which essentially is an inactivated vaccine. The one exception to the live vaccines, and again, this is my opinion, but vetalizumab and its gut selectivity probably live vaccines are okay. Again, I think we probably need more data, but I have had patients who especially are traveling, they got yellow fever vaccine, and they're on vetalizumab. So what about this whole zoster story? So there's the zoster live vaccine that we mentioned. Interestingly, we always said we can't give our patients a Zostavax who are immunosuppressed, but look at these caveats. So actually in the CDC, live vaccine can be given in our patients under 20 of prednisone, under 1.5 milligram per kilogram 6MP, and under 3 milligrams per kilogram of azathioprine. So these are actually pretty hefty doses. So if you actually look at it, probably was okay to give this live vaccine. And there was a JAMA article looking at biologics and anti-TNFs. We still don't recommend live vaccines for immunosuppressed patients, but it's interesting. There are probably some caveats to this. So then Shingrix comes along. Uh, again, it's two doses, given at zero month and then two to six months later. There has been some interesting concerns initially about this immunologic activation of IBD. I will tell you, um, I've not had it myself. I tried to get it. Uh, we're out of it right now at Cleveland Clinic. But some of my physician colleagues kind of jokingly but seriously said who got it, don't get it on a Monday when you have a full work week. Get it on a Friday as long as you don't mind killing your weekend because there are some flu-like responses that these patients get when they get this vaccine. In terms of blood testing, I think that this has been nicely covered. I'm not going to review all of this. I will say that quantifiron gold has been my preferred modality for TB testing. Please note one thing, though. If your patient is immunosuppressed, and especially if they're on prednisone, because it is a T-cell-mediated response, you will get an indeterminate level. 
So if you're sending the quantifier on gold and you're getting a lot of indeterminate readings and wondering what you're going to do and the patient's immunosuppressed, this is something we need to look out for. Lipids I don't send except in tofacitimib start patients. And right now I'm not doing varicella and I'm actually not doing EBV testing on everybody. But as you know, EBV negative antibody-negative males who on thiopurine get EBV infection, especially have higher rates of HHT. And this can be actually fairly significant. So a lot of controversy whether we should test for it and whether we should treat these patients. Checklist, there are a number of checklists out there. This isn't meant for you to read, just that these are now uh, easily incorporated into our uh, systems. This is the one from the Crohn's Colitis Foundation. Cornerstones has one as well. I think these are very useful and you're probably aware of these. So let's move on to monitoring patients on new therapies and actually what do we do when a side effect or an adverse event occurs on our patient? So again, much less evidence, more eminence. And as you've seen from all of the speakers before me, I'm gonna present some cases from my clinic. But the end, I will try to synthesize all of the information into some tables on how I approach it. And then I have this safety pyramid that I put together at the end. Now the safety pyramid, I'll say, is mine. It's my opinion, it's not evidence-based, uh, so stay tuned, because I know sometimes that generates some discussion. So um, let's look at uh, a few components. Age matters in IBD, and age matters in IBD treatment. And I think you've seen this before. I will tell you that patients over the age of 60, if I use an anti-TNF, I use monotherapy anti-TNF, and my general trend is to use morvedolizumab and ustekimumab in my over 60-year-old patients. So I'm using less combination anti-TNF and more monotherapy with the three classes of uh, biologics. All right, so on to a case. Uh, so this is, um, well, we'll see. I'm not going to pick on anybody, but we'll see as you go through this if you get this. This is a 33-year-old severe fistulizing patient that I had seen. Um, this, is, this was about five years ago. So they were on infliximab and azathioprine, actually in remission, recently relocated from Louisville. For the past month, had fever, um, myalgias, weight loss, cough. What were we initially worried about? Tuberculosis. We did a TB workup. It was negative. Quantiferin actually came back negative, not indeterminate. The chest x-ray shows this. So what is this? All right, so I heard PCP and I heard histoplasmosis. So bronchoscopy's done. Nobody knows what this is, so I'll tell you. So this is histoplasmosis. Um, so invasive fungal infections are higher in our patients on anti-TNF. So what do we do? Okay, so this patient has active histoplasmosis. They've had pretty severe IBD in the past. So we stop the azathioprine and infliximab initially to treat. And then the question is, what do you do when, they, when the infection's cleared? So this was a patient actually at the time who's doing extremely well. Ultimately, we switched over to vedolizumab as a single monotherapy agent, and the patient has done well. So anti-TNF safety, you know the, the story as far as what the available anti-TNFs are in inflammatory bowel disease, so I won't recap all of the names. 
Um, but we also know if you look down the side effects, and you actually heard some very nice talks earlier about some of the side effects, but still the, probably the two that I would point out are serious infections and skin. And I, I think skin is actually uh, kind of a window into the soul of our immune system, if you will. And it's very interesting. I think these skin manifestations in IBD, but now in reaction to our medications, may represent something. And serious infections. So I still think infections are the one thing with anti-TNFs that I'll counsel my patients on and make sure that we talk to them uh, about these as well. So uh, one thing on the uh, um, histoplasmosis I should mention, uh, we ultimately did go on to vetalizumab. IV immunoglobulin, uh, Dave Schwartz, who I don't think is here right now, but there's interestingly, there's been some salvage studies using IVIG in patients who've developed infections on anti-TNF. Um, it's an expensive therapy, it's sometimes hard to get, but it's an interesting alternative uh, for these patients. Well, we talked about vetalizumab. I'm not going to talk about natalizumab, and I think Alan and others mentioned we're rarely using that. But vetalizumab, as we know, is gut selective, and there are a number that are in the pipeline. So this is a therapy we're going to see more over time, both in the IV form and in the subcutaneous form. What are the important take-home points for vetalizumab? Well, so far, there have been no cases of PML. I should say, if you've heard this kind of buzz a little bit, there was one case of a gentleman who had HIV AIDS, who had been on some immunosuppressives for some time, who developed PML um, and happened to be on veto. But all intents and purposes, we're not seeing PML with vetalizumab. The other important aspect is the immunogenicity rate with monotherapy vetalizumab is in the order of about 2 to 3 percent, and that's similar to ustekimumab. So when I start vetalizumab as the first-line agent, I do not give combination therapy. If I start it and they've been on a, uh, already developed antibodies to at least one or two anti-TNFs, then I will use combination approach to vetalizumab in that case. The malignancy profile has looked very good as well. Well, speaking of malignancy, uh, what's this? It's a 39-year-old Crohn's, again, on combination therapy, 6-MP, and infliximab actually did extremely well for eight years. I should mention this um, man had very severe Crohn's, actually gastric, small bowel, upper, lower, and colonic disease with fistula, who his life changed in a very good way, but now he comes in with weight loss, sweats, and low-grade fevers. And I think as the uh, speakers were saying before, this actually came as a 5 o'clock on a Friday call, and the question is, what do you do? This is not something we ignore. So this is what we talk about a lot and we hope we don't see, but this is, this is a guy who developed the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the question is, what do we do with the IBD medications? And my sense is this is probably more thiopurine-driven, but I'll come to in a minute uh, the anti-TNF story. So what do we do? We stop both agents. Obviously, I think all of us do that. He responded extremely well. So he got three months of treatment for his lymphoma. Now, at the time, we didn't have some of these other agents, and we did have a discussion with the oncologist. He went back on monotherapy, anti-TNF, and he's actually been lymphoma-free uh, in remission. Today, I probably would have switched him to either vetalizumab, probably preferably, or used to kimumab as my next step. 
So the question is, should we abandon thiopurines completely? So the pendulum swings vastly in the last 20 years. And you've heard us at the podium now shying away from thiopurine monotherapy at all and talking about combination. So this was an interesting French study looking at lymphoma rates in patients with IBD and in the orange on the left-hand bottom of this, two-thirds of lymphoma actually occurred in patients who had not been on thiopurines or anti-TNFs. Combo therapy, you've seen this, the anti-TNF and the thiopurines are the highest. Interestingly, and there's some imperfections to this study, but the point made is thiopurines are probably the putative factor in terms of lymphoma, uh, but anti-TNF alone may also have a lymphoma signal. So thiopurines, what do I do in my practice? Well, again, I mentioned a minute ago, I do use these in combination with an anti-TNF, um, and I rarely use thiopurines alone as a single agent anymore. So I'll tell you, in my practice, I only are using these in combination. I don't use them, as I mentioned, in combination with Vito or Ustekimumab. I think you eliminate the safety profile of Ustekimumab and Vito by using these. And again, the immunogenicity is quite low. I do, after a year, de-escalate the thiopurine and get them off. One exception, I have had, and all of us have had, these really catastrophic Crohn's patients where there's almost this malignant Crohn's where it's so aggressive. I actually, if they're doing well in combination anti-TNF and thiopurines, I do not stop the combination. And we've all had these patients for years who've done well. The very severe Crohn's, in essence, is almost, in my opinion, almost like a malignancy in terms of how severe it is in some of these patients, and I wouldn't stop combination. Well, think back to, we confuse all of you and we confuse ourselves. Every five years, we tell you something different. So five years ago, we said, never stop combination. Now we're telling you something else. But this is one case where I don't stop combination. My young males, I am using more methotrexate. I tend to use 12.5 milligrams once a week as the immunogenic properties of methotrexate with anti-TNF. And I am using more oral methotrexate for immunogenicity, but certainly sub-Q is reasonable. Skin, you've kind of seen this a little bit already. So this is a patient with severe panintestinal Crohn's who develops this. I think with Millie's talk, you probably get this. The other thing I'll tell you, and this is in my practice, the young females that come in with this, I don't know why, it seems to be around the ears, and, and Millie showed this, around the scalp line. So for my trainees, when the patients referred in and they said, oh, they have a little bit of eczema on their ears, I, tell, I ask them what medicine if they're on, and if they say it's an anti-TNF, I say, I don't think that's eczema. I think this is probably the beginning of psoriasis. So Millie already went through this, but most of the time we can treat through the psoriasis and anti-TNFs. However, as shown by Millie in her talk, some of these are very aggressive. Palmar, plantar, losing hair, scalp. I saw a young man the other week, just terrible psoriasis. And, and in those cases, even with methotrexate, I think we need to switch to ustekimumab. And that's been more or less what I've been doing in my practice. So speaking of ustekimumab, uh, again, this has been out now for a couple of years, and I think we're getting better uh, adoption of this in our practices and becoming more comfortable with ustekimumab for the treatment of Crohn's disease. 
So safety profile, there have been studies, now longer term studies, but at, to date, there's no FDA black box warning, and that's a powerful message for our patients. So our patients go on the web, they're very well informed, they like the fact that there's no black box warning. Again, very low immunogenicity, 2.3% of the patients have immunogenicity with eustachimumab. It seems to be, again, a very safe medication. And I would say safety, betalizumab and eustachimumab seem to have similar safety profiles. What about tofacitimib? Well, this is the newest. There's been a lot of discussion about JAK inhibitors. Uh, in the future, there may be selective JAK inhibitors, which may actually eliminate some of the safety uh, concerns that we've been talking about with tofacitimib. So I think all of you will get this probably so far each case you got, but this is a 58-year-old on TOFA, 10 milligrams twice a day for two months. Actually does extremely well with tofacitimib. One week ago started to get pain in the flank. Actually at the time thought it was a kidney stone. So initially called into my office and talked to us on the phone and said having flank pain. We act it actually had a kidney stone years ago. So first we got a urinalysis, but then four days later actually started getting these blisters. You've seen this. Um, so this again is shingles, this is zoster. And this is, now brings us to the question about the JAK inhibitors and safety. So we know that this works on the JAK-STAP pathway. You've seen this through different talks. Um, it's a potent immunosuppressant in terms of that it does interfere with the translation of certain cytokines. This is actually a very effective medicine. It has downstream effects on multiple cytokine pathways. So when we look at herpes zoster and herpes in general, we should step back and realize that as you look at the top four, adalivumab through infliximab, anti-TNFs have been linked to viral infections, and we've seen this. We haven't talked about this as much. Tofacitimib is higher in terms of the incidence and prevalence of herpes. Now, one thing that's interesting, it seems to be higher in Asia. So Asia seems to, if you look at geographic distribution, Asia prevalence is higher in terms of tofacitimib-induced herpes zoster. So summary of adverse events for TOFA. Again, it's up to uh, herpes zoster is twice the rate of anti-TNFs, probably similar actually to thiopurine. So again, that we don't talk about that as much. Other side effects that can be seen with tofacitimib are the non-melanoma skin cancers. GI perforation came up earlier, but I'll just state that there's no risk for GI perforation over placebo. You've heard a lot about cholesterol, and there's this parallel LDL-HDL cholesterol association, although we have not seen an impact on cardiovascular. And then the question is, should we treat high LDL with cholesterol-lowering medicines? And again, another area that I think we all cringe as gastroenterologists, thinking that we're going to need to treat these patients. I would tell you, generally speaking, they're not patients that I've seen where we've had to do this. So yes, we talk about it. We haven't seen it. No immunogenicity, oral small molecules, so these are uh, agents we can stop and start. Uh, creatinine kinase has been increased in some patients on this, but we don't see a clinical impact. Pregnancy, I think you've heard this, but to restate it, currently we do not recommend tofacitimib in pregnancy, and we do recommend stopping it uh, three months before conception. 
So talking about half-lives, you know, this comes up all the time. We get a side effect and we say, do we stop the therapy? Can we continue it? How long is this going to leave the body? And the question is, what is the half-life for these medicines? So this is a list of the half-lives based on the label. So infliximab from 9.5 days, adalibumab 14, Vito about 25, ustikimumab about 21. In the red, though, you'll see for the monoclonal antibodies to fully clear probably is truly five half-lives. And the other part of this at the bottom in purple is there's probably an immunologic impact that's much longer. The reason I say that is we sometimes stop these therapies, but the reality is by the time whatever they're having clears, the drug itself probably is still on board. So do we really have to stop it? And I think that's something we need to think about. Tofacitimib's in the matter of hours. So as long as the renal function is normal, tofacitimib is cleared quickly. So I put together a calendar, and I'll show you today. So December 15th, we're sitting here, and the question is, many of these drugs take six to eight weeks. So if we stop the drug, the Red X today, December 15th, from an immunologic standpoint, that means January 29th to February 12th is when it's fully cleared the body from an immune status standpoint. So do we really need to stop these? And again, I don't have an answer, but I think we sometimes knee-jerk to stopping when possibly, especially with certain infections, we could possibly continue through. Tofacitimib, interestingly, if we stop it today, should be cleared technically by tomorrow. So it's a very fast clearance, uh, and this is something that's a bit different than the monoclonals. So what do I do? I'm going to give you some summary tables now. So if you have an infection, and the question is which infections are associated with medications, I broke them down into viral, bacterial, opportunistic, and C. diff. You can see the four mechanism of action classes of medicines across the left, and then kind of the boxes in terms of what's been associated. So I think we all see that the anti-TNFs, pretty much we see an association with most, especially the opportunistic infections, fungal infections. We do see the JAK inhibitor, certainly zoster. We've seen that signal. Bacteria, I, I don't know. I put a yes with a question mark. The same with the IL-1223. Well, what do we do if we get these infections? Do we need to stop the medications in these? So I think the opportunistic infections, which I read highlighted here, probably the ones that we would need to pay a special attention to. So the anti-TNFs, and again, I, I say a minute ago that we have a longer half-life, I think you really need to use the risk-benefit with that individual patient. But for most of these, if it's a serious fungal infection, so the guy with the histoplasmosis that was quite severe, I'm not going to be cavalier and say we should continue to treat through. We should stop our therapies in that. The interesting one, you can see what's different in this column are the anti-integrins. So it may be that vetalizumab, if a patient is due for a dose, I mean, practically speaking, if the patient's extremely sick and they're due for a dose tomorrow, we're probably practically going to hold it for about a week. But the point is, vetalizumab is probably okay to continue to treat through. The viral infections related to the JAKs, and, and again, I don't know if we actually have to stop. This came up yesterday. I put stop, treat, and restart. Um, I'm not sure that's necessary. I guess if it's ocular or facial uh, zoster, that would be important. But I sometimes wonder, and this is kind of what we did with the thiopurines. We never knew if we should stop or continue, um, but I put that as a question. 
There had been initially some concern about the anti-integrins in C. diff. Um, I don't know that we're seeing this at a high rate. CMV would be in the same bucket. If somebody has a bad C. diff infection or CMV and they're due for a dose of vetalizumab tomorrow, I am holding it without any evidence-based data, but just because of the gut selectivity. I think generally it's okay in C. diff. CMV, I think, is just a bad actor in general, which is going to probably prognosticate toward a colectomy anyway, in my opinion. Malignancy, so I put solid tumor and lymphoma. So solid tumor, interesting, when you look down the column, we don't think or we haven't seen solid tumor association with our biologic therapies. Lymphoma, yes, and specifically lymphoma with the anti-TNFs, but specifically with the thiopurines. I put Jack there as a maybe because there has been some at least question about this, but I think the longer-term studies are not showing this. So what do we do if somebody develops a solid tumor or develops a lymphoma? Well, if the patient, so this is my rule of thumb for the column under solid tumor, if the patient goes on a systemic chemotherapeutic agent, which is immunosuppressant, I usually stop the second agent. We can have a discussion about whether we need to do that with vetalizumab, but I stop it because they're being immunosuppressed anyway. We work with the oncologist, but we will continue the, or we will restart the medication once they're cleared, and certainly I think ustekimumab, certainly vetalizumab I think is safe uh, to, to continue and treat through. What about lymphomas? Well, if they have an active lymphoma, I think in the anti-TNF, certainly stop. Thiopurines, absolutely stop and never use a thiopurine again. The vetalizumab's probably okay to continue. I think the um, IL-1223 and Jack, again, I put that as a continue stop of cytotoxic chemotherapy, but especially the Jack, where we can probably stop and start these without immunogenicity uh, if they develop a lymphoma, may be something that's okay, but we can have a discussion because that may fall into a thiopurine uh, bucket. So take-home points, and then I'll get to my pyramid. So prevention is the best way. We should vaccinate. We do a poor job. We're actually at Cleveland Clinic going to do a study looking at our vaccination rate, which is quite low, and then doing some educational maneuvers to see if we can improve vaccinations. I think we should incorporate checklists in our EMR. If an adverse event occurs, and I think the speakers this morning said this nicely, is it related to IBD or the medicine? I think we have to answer that first. So anti-TNF psoriasis, yes, that's a direct link. PSC in the setting of UC on an anti-TNF, no, that's not related to anti-TNF, and we can continue that. Anti-TNF certainly have been associated with fungal and bacterial infections, opportunistic infections, and again, the signal with lymphoma. JAK inhibitors, lipids, zoster we talked about, non-melanoma skin cancers. IL-1223, so far, no black box. I think we just need to be vigilant for infections, but seems to have a nice safety profile as well as the vetalizumab. The transient elevation in LFTs with veto seem to be mild. Arthralgias, we can have a big debate on that, but I don't think that that's as much a problem. Non-infections pharyngitis, since this is taken up by the mucosa. Some patients will get a little bit of a sore throat when they start. I tell them, don't worry, it's not, unless they have a fever, that generally goes away. And age does matter. So over 60, 
Uh, monotherapy anti-TNF, I don't use combination, and certainly things like Vito and Eustachimumab are appealing. So, this is my safety pyramid, and I realize this is not evidence, this is my thoughts, so this is nobody else, so I got in trouble a little bit at ECHO, or not in trouble, but at ECHO last year, this simulated a lot of discussion, and I'm curious to see what the panel thinks. I'd put steroids at the bottom of the safety pyramid, and I think combination anti-TNF and thiopurines. Thiopurines are tofen. I'll come back to tofacitimib. Um, I was looking at them in a similar on par. Anti-TF monotherapy, ustekimumab, and vetalizumab. So some people say, shouldn't veto and ustekimumab be on the same line? I can't argue with that. I put veto at top just because of the gut selectivity and still used to kimumab is, is systemic. But keep in mind one thing. When you look at anti-TNFs and thiopurines, if they're working, we need to individualize treatment. Because under treatment of IBD and severe systemic inflammation that can lead to neurologic consequences, vascular consequences, we need to treat our patients with what we think the best therapy is. And an adverse event is under treatment. So keep that in mind when we look at these. And I put a red arrow with TOFIN. I wonder if we move it up the safety paradigm because of some of the safety data, the five-year data that's coming out, which looks very good. I think we may think about this in a different way. But thank you very much for your attention, and I guess with that, we'll have a panel discussion.